Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging, providing proactive medical diagnostics to catch deadly or debilitating diseases early, using state-of-the-art equipment to detect warning signs or offer peace of mind. You can take charge of your health at virtualimagingatl.com. The 2022 election is still underway. At least in Georgia, that is. Whether it's later tonight or tomorrow, or four weeks from now, we will hear from the people of Georgia. The U.S. Senate race between incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker is headed to a runoff. So I want to tell y'all, if you can hang in, hang in there a little bit longer. Just hang in there a little bit longer. Because something good, it takes a while for it to get better. But that race was the exception. Republican Governor Brian Kemp won a second term, overcoming a Trump-backed primary challenger and two-time Democratic rival Stacey Abrams. It looks like the reports of my political death have been greatly exaggerated. Abrams conceded her race, but she said Georgia's politics won't be the same. And I am here to tell you that what we have architected in this state does not end today. What did this election tell us about where Georgia stands politically and where it's headed? And what should we expect as Georgia's Senate race drags on? I'm Emma Hurt, a reporter for Axios in Atlanta. I'm Sam Greenglass, WABE politics reporter. And I'm Raul Bally, also a politics reporter here at WABE. And I'm Susanna Capaluto, WABE's politics editor. And this is Georgia Votes 2022, a podcast all about the midterms. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote it's a duty. because I want to make an and impact. I vote my because I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. Well, hey there, we're back. We've got four more weeks of campaigning and this podcast, and we'll be here until the last vote is counted. So let's get into this runoff. How did we get here? So as we've been explaining, you know, throughout the campaign season in the state of Georgia, you need 50 percent of the vote plus one or the top two candidates go to a runoff. And the only major statewide race here in Georgia that happened in was U.S. Senate. And so we're seeing that uh, Democratic uh, incumbent Raphael Warnock, along with Republican challenger Herschel Walker, are going to be headed to a December 6th runoff. So let's talk about some of the reasons why this race in particular ended up in a runoff, one of which is a trend that we started to see emerge in polls early on in this campaign. It's something we heard from voters on the campaign trail. And then fairly early on election night, we started to see it in the returns. And that's that Governor Brian Kemp and other statewide Republicans were running ahead of the margins that Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker was getting. So there is some kind of difference going on there. And one possible explanation for that is this phenomenon of split ticket voters, people who are voting for Governor Kemp, but were also either voting for Senator Warnock for Senate, leaving that race blank, or maybe voting for the Libertarian. And there's lots of reasons why that potentially could be, one of which being that Walker comes with a lot of baggage that the other candidates did not, namely, you know, exaggerating his business ties, his academic record. And late in the race, these revelations uh, related to him uh, allegedly paying for abortions, despite his really stringent stance on the procedure as a candidate. 
Yeah, I mean, it's tricky to know exactly how many votes this ended up being, but there are some key numbers that we already can see in the results. About 200,000 more votes went to Kemp than Walker. About 132,000 more votes went to Warnock versus Stacey Abrams. And all that, you know, boils down to the fact that Senator Warnock, while he has a narrow lead over Walker, He's still at 49.42% of the vote, which is not 50.1, 50.01. And that is why we're headed to a runoff. And I want to mention a couple of other numbers in addition to, to what Emma said. There were 18,000 people who voted in the governor's race, but didn't vote in the Senate race. And I believe many of those were those Republican voters that I talked to in the campaign trail who were going to vote Republican, they voted for Governor Kemp, and then skipped that Senate race. And another notable number, and you see a lot of discussion of it on on social media, is what happened with the Libertarian candidates. Chase Oliver, who was the the Senate candidate, pulling in 2% of the vote, 80,000 votes, while Shane Hazel, who was in the governor's race, uh, pulled in less than 1%, only about 28,000 votes. Now, as we're taping this, we're still waiting for results from Arizona and Nevada, two Senate races there. If they both go for Democrats, Georgia's seat would be the 51st. If only one of them goes to Democrats, balance of power in the Senate would again hinge on Georgia. How are those dynamics different? I mean, I will say with such a narrow majority, both parties are going to spend a lot of money on this race no matter what, because as we know, you know, having that one more vote can make a big difference in passing some of the legislation in the Senate these days. Regardless, there will be a lot of money. But if balance of power truly hinges on Georgia, there will be immense amounts of money, just like we saw in the twin runoffs in 2021. Not not the same amount, right, because there's only one seat this time, but still a lot. And, and there are a lot of questions, though, in talking to Republican and Democratic strategists. Like, nobody, nobody knows yet. Um, how this will play out. The question is, is does it affect turnout on both sides, right? If Democrats already have a majority, does that dampen Democratic turnout? And then, you know, hand the race to the more loyal voters of Republicans. If control is still up in the air, does that accrue to Herschel Walker's benefit? Because Republican voters may look past any qualms they had about him as a candidate and and vote for their party. Yeah, and it really gets to this push-pull that's kind of shaped the race from the start, which is between the individual candidates and their own personalities and backgrounds and the national political climate in which they're a part of. You know, does it matter more whether, you know, you feel comfortable with this specific person being Georgia's representative in the U.S. Senate, or does it matter more whether they represent the party that's in power in the White House? And I think we'll start to see some of that dynamic play out again, and which one ends up being more important could shape what happens in the end in this race. The other factor that we haven't talked about here, too, is whether we see former President Donald Trump announcing that he's running for president as voting gets underway in this race. You know, Trump has mostly not been a factor in the general election here in Georgia when it comes to the Senate. If he does become an animating force, how will that shape turn out one way or the other are the messages that we hear from candidates? Emma, I think you actually asked Senator Warnock about this on the campaign trail on on election day. What did he say? Yeah, I did. And he tends to not like to answer hypotheticals, but he did give, I think, a bit of a glimpse into what 
what his message might be saying my opponent doesn't seem to have articulated his own agenda for Georgia. So maybe his agenda is someone else's. So, I mean, we do know Trump lost this state. Trump also lost many of the primaries he tried to run. And it seems like Georgia voters all around have sent a message about how they feel about former President Trump. And I am positive that Senator Warnock will make sure to remind people of Herschel Walker's ties to Trump. It is true to your point, Sam, that he hasn't really been as much of a factor both in Democratic attacks and in in Republican campaigning to this point. Let me bring up one other dynamic that I think we should take in consideration because I've seen it in my own home, and that is voter fatigue, election fatigue, journalist fatigue, all of it. And and I've seen it here in my own home. You know, my wife is politically active, and and when I told her the Senate race is is going to a runoff, she just shrugged her shoulders. That's something we definitely need to take in consideration because of just how intense the focus has been on Georgia and whether it is the 50 or the 51st seat that's in play, there may be people who are just going to check out no matter what it is. So we used to have nine weeks of runoffs for federal offices in 2020 that gave Democrats and also, I guess, Republicans a lot of time to get their voters back out. Democrats then were more successful Now the Republican-led voting law changed the window for runoffs to just four weeks. What was the thinking behind that? Was it that Republicans are more reliable runoff voters and that this would be better for them? Or was it simply that nine weeks is just too long? I mean, this is another one of those things with this law where Republicans will say we're doing this to make it easier. And I do think that everybody, regardless of party, can agree that it is much better to only have one major holiday in the middle of your runoff versus two, including Christmas and New Year's. But it is notable that that Democrats were much more successful in the last runoff structure. And a crucial part of that was there was a voter registration window between the general election and the runoffs. And now that's no longer the case. So no one new can be registered for this runoff. It is a bit of a bigger electorate because anyone who became eligible or registered between October 11th and November 7th on Monday is eligible in this runoff, but nobody after November 7th. And and that's a big that's a big factor in, in how this turnout operation will have to work. You know, we always talk about kind of the law of unintended consequences. I think one thing that was either not taken in consideration or not taken in consideration enough is the stress on elections officials and election workers, because right now they're still trying to finish up the work and the certification of the election we just had, while also trying to turn the ship around for a runoff election. And it's a lot. And In the middle of it, if there's any kind of challenges or any kind of issues with an election, these elections officials don't really have the bandwidth, frankly, for it. Yeah, as tired as we are, I I keep thinking about these poor election officials who who are working probably much harder than us. So what are actually the logistics here with just four weeks? First of all, as we've mentioned, this is a four week runoff. Election day is December the 6th. Mandatory in-person early voting happens on the Monday through Friday between Thanksgiving and Election Day. That's November 28th to December the 2nd. But let me tell you something important in the law. It says that absentee ballots and early in-person voting can start as soon as possible. Back in the May primary runoffs, we saw two major counties, Cobb and Fulton, 
start a little earlier. That meant they did some weekend voting. And so that is something I'm going to be watching for, just this dynamic between Republican and Democratic counties on whether they're going to do more early in-person voting, especially on the weekends. So what about Thanksgiving Day? They have to give people off on Thanksgiving Day, right? Yeah, they would have to because both that Thursday and Friday are both state and county holidays. So I wouldn't expect to see any voting. I think what really the challenge is, is if you're a local county elections office, are you going to set up your early voting equipment on the weekend of Thanksgiving, or are you going to set it up on the Tuesday and Wednesday before Thanksgiving? When are election workers going to come in and, and set up whatever they need to set up for, for early in-person voting? Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to look to all these counties because, as we know, they each can make their own decision about this. Everyone has to start that Monday, but others can start earlier. I'm hearing that Fulton in particular, might start over the weekend. But what we do know for sure is you can already request your absentee ballot for the election. So if you're going to be out of town that week, because you only have probably one week, um, you should request your absentee ballot now online. Did you know that interesting sideline, overseas ballots? My daughter is in Berlin, so she voted an overseas ballot. And when she voted, she also voted for a possible runoff because she could only vote in the Senate race because it's overseas for some reason. So she voted in both races in case there is a runoff because they don't have enough time. And that was one of the reasons that they did that for overseas and military ballots, right? Because they were worried that they would get sued over the four-week runoff if they didn't have some mechanism, because there just wouldn't be enough time in four weeks to get those ballots out to people abroad, right? Yeah, it's another thing that changed in the 2021 law. I'm glad you brought it up, Susanna, because it's a big change and it's uh, kind of a progressive uh, election administration move on behalf on that the Secretary of State and, and counties are now undergoing. So we'll see how this ranked choice system works. It's something that some advocates say we should move to in general. Of course, one big question about this runoff, will Republicans come around and support Walker? And will Democrats come back to vote? Yeah, well, I think that's one of the big questions that will be animating this runoff, and we just don't have the answer right now. As far as turnout, I mean, I think this goes to Emma's point about the slimmer window. You can't register new people, so you have to make sure that you get people to go out and vote again. You know, are people's feelings about the candidates, about who has power in Washington strong enough to go out and vote one more time after an election that's already been really draining for people? Certainly, candidates are going to be ramping up their turnout operations, and they'll have the extra resources to do it in this really, really short window to knock doors and make phone calls and get digital advertising out there to make sure that their people go back to the polls and vote one more time. You know, in my conversations early, obviously, with Walker World and, and, and Warnock World, I mean, Warnock in particular, they, they feel pretty confident because they're looking at how much better every other statewide Republican did and saying that with everything in his favor, Herschel Walker still couldn't get more votes than us. And that to them is uh, confirmation that Warnock's campaign strategy to this point has worked and, and they'll continue with that. I mean, we do know he's focused a lot on his bipartisan policy work on the campaign trail. But the the question then goes to, to Walker of given that in the last few weeks he has run a much more conservative campaign than, than Brian Kemp, for example, talking about these more 
hot button issues like quote men and women's sports and and you know anti wokeness and these these issues you'd see more likely in a primary, does he shift his strategy at all there and and adopt lean more into you know Governor Brian Kemp's message, which was almost solely focused on the economy? We'll see. What we do know is that Governor Kemp's campaign operation is is going to help Walker in the next couple weeks in a way that they weren't really coordinating before. Now that Kemp has won, he's built this ground game operation and will be able to lend a hand to Walker in a new way. That's also something to watch. You know, we've talked a lot about this race in the frame of people voting against Walker or against Warnock. But I think one piece of this that we have not mentioned is the power of incumbents. You know, we saw that with Governor Kemp and we might see that with Senator Warnock, too. I mean, despite all of the political headwinds facing Democrats in Georgia, Warnock has emerged as a fairly or at least somewhat popular figure that people like him. He has played into this idea of him being a reverend and, you know, not getting in the mud very much with with Walker, um, despite all of the options for him to do that. So it is also possible here that, you know, people simply like their senator and want to stick with him. And without the the kind of red wave that many were worried about, you you see that kind of takes the wind out of the sails of the what Republicans assumed would be an easy argument to make against Warnock. Georgia voters were not so convinced. And I know we'll talk about this in future podcasts, but how much will Kemp be on the campaign trail for Walker? Will they go up there rah-rah together on stage uh, or will it just be sort of a little bit of his ground operation? Yeah, we'll help you in the background. Like, how loud will Kemp get? I think that's a good question, Suzanne. I don't know if we know the answer to that yet, but we do know that now that Kemp has won, he is much more free to do whatever he wants. I mean, he does not risk anything by appearing on stage alongside Herschel Walker like he would have last week. So that could change things. We do know that, you know, their ties to the University of Georgia. Kemp was, I think, at the game where Herschel won the 1980 championship. Like, there, there are ties there that, that could come back out. Their relationship has been kind of strained on the trail as they've had these different strategies. But it'll be certainly something to watch. We, I mean, behind the scenes, for sure, it looks like there'll be coordination. How much time will Brian Kemp spend campaigning for Herschel Walker? If passed his prelude, Governor Brian Kemp has gone out and campaigned for every Republican, you know, statewide, Kelly Leffler, David Perdue, he was on the trail for them constantly. So so perhaps we might see more of him on her with Herschel Walker. And I think, you know, this is a good reminder, too, that even though this feels like a continuation of the general election, which in many ways it is, it is also a little bit of a reset. You know, the night before Election Day, we saw Kemp and Walker having separate rallies basically across the street from each other because that was the strategy in that moment. But now, even though, you know, these are the same two Senate candidates running for office, we're in a little bit of a different moment and some strategies might continue, some things can change. And let me give you what possibly could be the path to continue that parallel universe where you've got the Walker campaign over here and Kemp World over here. Governor Kemp and his staff have to make the turn toward the 2023 legislative session. 
working on the $30 billion plus budget, what to do about billions in state surplus, and another important dynamic that's going to be happening at the state capitol, something we'll be talking down the line is, there's a new leader in the state senate and there's going to be a new leader in the state house. That that line of continuity is actually going to be coming out of the governor's office. And then there's also the fact that at some point, the governor is going to have to testify in front of the Fulton County Special Grand Jury that's looking into 2020 election interference in Georgia. Those things are also out there. So I also see a path where the governor says, look, I need to focus on my job and my world as well. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have some highlights from election night in Georgia. I'm Susanna Capaluto, and this is Georgia Votes 2022. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022. Today with Raul Sam and Emma. So how did overall voting go in Georgia? It was boring, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> it was so it was actually very refreshing um, because we all really only had to cover the politics. Whereas in 2020, as we know, it was two roaring separate stories of, of the voting challenges and the politics and the political implications. I felt for my colleagues in other states like Arizona, where they did have some issues with voting machines that did generate disinformation, we didn't have anything like that. The one thing that did come up, and I think we did predict this on the podcast, was the last day of in-person early voting on that Friday was going to get a little crazy. And it did. We, we saw some lines here in the metro Atlanta area. But, you know, as as I said um, on air uh, elsewhere, you know, it's kind of like the last day of the month of the DMV. You shouldn't be surprised if there are going to be long lines on that day. Yeah, and I think the only real issue was the absentee ballots not being sent out, those, you know, 1,000 or so in Cobb County. But there was a lawsuit, and the court intervened, and those ballots were overnighted. I don't think we have a clear picture yet of if those people ended up getting their ballots in and voting, but that was maybe the only small issue across the state. And I found the sentiment very interesting from the Secretary of State's office, from Gabriel Sterling, who basically said, look, election deniers, we showed you. You can't make up any conspiracy theories here now. It, it felt like they needed to show them that this is a normal election. What most surprised you all on election night, if anything? I was surprised by how quickly the governor's race was wrapped up. I mean, four hours after polls closed, Stacey Abrams called Brian Kemp to concede. That's a big change from 2018, where it was 10 days, right, before she acknowledged her loss and, and wouldn't use the word concede. But still, that margin was was wide. I mean, it, it's also kind of surprising, given if you look nationally in Georgia, actually, the polling was kind of right I mean, consistently, we saw Brian Kemp with this widening margin, and, and he ended up with one that was slightly even bigger. It also showed the Senate race neck and neck, and it certainly was. So that, to me, was surprising. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. Like, despite all of the uncertainty about what could happen, a lot of the trends that we were seeing in polls, hearing from voters on the campaign trail, is basically what came true on election night. Um, there was really no huge surprises. I think maybe the one surprise you could say, though, is that Georgia, in some ways, bucked trends that were happening around the country. You know, in many cases, it was a big night for Democrats, surprisingly. And it seems like Georgia, as it has in the past, kind of moved in not quite an opposite direction of the rest of the country, but did its own thing, basically. 
and I want to mention one other kind of big picture dynamic that was on full display on the Monday and the Monday before Election Day and on Election Day. And that this I feel like there's a divide between certain segments of the Republican Party. You know, you had Kemp and Walker, you know, have their final rallies, you know, less than a mile apart. You had their election night parties less than a mile apart. You had people trying to go back and forth, including reporters, along with politicians and people, along with people who weren't going back and forth. I was at the camp night party and absolutely there was some kind of open displays and people talking to me about their issues they had with the folks down the road over at the at the Walker camp, whether they were staffers or just, you know, regular supporters there. Those divides just kind of being openly out there on those last two days not as much surprised me, but kind of confirmed what I think I'd been feeling on the trail. Now, with Republicans winning all statewide races, are we really a battleground state? Look, Georgia is going to be in play in 2024. We still have at least one Democratic senator in John Ossoff. It's still a purple state. But these pretty decisive margins for Republicans um, take a lot of the wind out of the sails of the Democratic argument that Georgia is turning blue. Now, it's it's possible to to Sam's point in previous episodes that that this is still a continuum ultimately of of the state moving blue, but with fits and starts, right? Really what this showed though was was voters were were feeling good about Governor Brian Kemp in particular at the top of the ticket. And perhaps, you know, I've heard looking for something that seemed stable, a stable option. And incumbency definitely can can seem to provide that. Yeah, it's kind of like we don't have enough data points yet. Like, was 2020 and 2021 a fluke? Was 2022 a fluke? Were neither of them a fluke? And Georgia's just a jumbled, mixed place. Did the national climate... Was it different now than it was in 2020? And that's what made the difference. I think it's just too soon to say exactly what this tells us. I would like to bring in UGA political scientist uh, Charles Bullock here. He thinks because of the margins, Republicans won, which were all between 51 and 54 percent. He thinks Democrats still have some hope here because of the issues that they were going against. They had to swim against inflation. They had to swim against Joe Biden's unpopularity in this state. So that went a long way towards helping Republicans hold on to the constitutional offices. Two years from now, you know, things may change. So, yeah, we're still, I think, very much of a purple state. We're very competitive. That being said, though, Susanna, it is noteworthy to see that Stacey Abrams lost by about 55,000 votes four years ago, and this time she lost by about 300,000. That's quite a big swing of uh, vote total there. Okay, let's turn to the state legislature. What happened there on election night? So as we record this, we still have a couple of races that, that have not been fully called in the Georgia legislature, which consists uh, 56 senators and 180 state house members. Uh, where things stand right now, the Democrats pick up one seat uh, in the state Senate, which was kind of expected, and two seats in the state house. And I think Democrats were hoping for more, but you also have to take into consideration those dynamics of redistricting and how the lines were redrawn. And also that, yes, it was a challenging environment, especially, you know, with, with Republicans doing so well at the top of the ballot. 
on statewide races. I do want to mention a couple of interesting things. Again, you know, all the numbers aren't in, but to me, it is so interesting. Again, this whole idea of a changing electric here in Georgia, that the legislature will have four Muslim Americans in the legislature, which to me is really notable, two in the House, two in the Senate, two of those uh, uh, are Muslim women. Um, and also, we could have about a double-digit number of Asian-American lawmakers at the state capitol, which is, a, these are kind of things I'm all following of, of what are these new lawmakers going to be like? What is the dynamics in the building? And, and then where are we headed down the road? Because all of these members are going to be up in two years. And there will be a new Speaker of the House, a big, powerful position. How will that change the dynamic? Georgia House Speaker David Ralston uh, has held that position for the past 12 years. You know, he's guided the Georgia legislature kind of the end of, you know, the recession of, of the late 2000s. And then, you know, this, you know, moving forward of the state of Georgia with, with economic expansion, but also a changing electric. You know, the, the Georgia House has lost Republican members. And in for some people, they've looked at him as kind of that shield from more extreme right-wing positions and right-wing legislation. Last Friday, we we got a really just kind of out of the blue surprise uh, release saying the speaker will not be up for re-election as speaker because of health issues. It dawned on me later that I hadn't seen him on the trail much um, since about late September, early October. So this is a big deal because by some people's measures, he is the second most powerful politician in the state of Georgia. No legislation can get through the Georgia House without his approval. That's why it's so important. That goes back to the idea that he has stopped, you know, more extreme legislation. House Republicans are expected to pick their new speaker on Monday. And to me, that election is as important as anything that's happened this week on election week. And the other reason why is this goes back to this bigger conversation I've been having that so many important issues are going back to the states like abortion and also possibly other issues like same-sex marriage and environmental issues. That's why this is important. This could really change the dynamics of which way legislation in the state of Georgia is handled and what happens with the bigger political picture here. And in terms of who looks to be up for election in that in that race is, you know, we have John Burns, former current majority leader, close ally of Ralston, and, and kind of Ralston's inner circle seems to have consolidated their support around him. But then we also have State Representative Barry Fleming, who I actually spoke to on election night, who said he was feeling good about his candidacy. And he seems to represent more of the conservative wing of the party. Now, both men are definitely conservative Republicans, don't get me wrong. But given the way that Speaker Ralston has legislated, John Burns seemed to be more of the pick that would that would be more interested in bipartisanship and, and more moderate policies. And Barry Fleming seems to be more to the right. A lot of things to watch in the coming weeks. That's it for this edition of Georgia Votes 2022, which will apparently be around for at least another four weeks. Emma, Sam, Raul, thanks for your reporting. Get some sleep. Georgia Votes is a production of the WABE Politics team. Our producer is Kevin Rinker. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at georgiavotes at wabe.org. We'll see you next week. Oh. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.